Let's pray. O God, the King Eternal, whose light divides the day from the night and turns the shadow of death into the morning, drive far from us all wrong desires, incline our hearts to keep your law, and guide our feet into the way of peace, that having done your will with cheerfulness while during the day, we may, when night comes, rejoice to give you thanks. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, um, we're going to continue on into the Catechism. Uh, we're going to be speaking about uh, uh, Jesus rising from the dead, what that means, what that accomplishes, etc. Um, we're also going to speak just a little bit about um, uh, some other things as well. But I want to I want to begin today by uh, kind of taking a bit of a detour back to first things. Um, and, and a bit of it has to do with, I just feel led to talk about this this morning, uh, the sources of Anglican doctrine. Um, you'll remember that in the early part of this course, you know, I, I made it quite clear that for Anglicans, authentic Christianity is apostolic Christianity. Now, where is it that we get the most early testimony to apostolic faith? Oh, you should know this one. It's Scripture, right? It's the New Testament. Um, and so uh, we as Anglicans say that that is not uh, simply uh, all of the apostolic testimony. It's simply the earliest example of it. Um, and this is a key difference because it means that um, we're not sort of simply trying to be antiquarian and get back to the church of the New Testament. A lot of people have tried that and failed. Um, the, the idea is instead to uh, found all of our teaching on the Holy Scripture um, to not uh, require anything to be believed that is not founded upon Holy Scripture, uh, but furthermore, uh, to be uh, uh, cons- to be constantly consenting to the, uh, the 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 received teaching of the Church through the through the centuries. Now, that's a very difficult line to walk because uh, many people uh, disagree about lots of different things, and so the question is, well, what is uh, a part of that consensus and what's not? Um, but but there a, a clear picture does emerge, and so one of the things that we've really tried to do uh, through the catechism is is paint that very uh, basic picture. Um, one of the things that's very different very different for the ways that in the in terms of the ways that Anglicans do theology and do and do doctrine is uh, is this really basic difference. And it has to do with um, the difference between what have you have you heard of uh, bounded set versus center set? It's kind of this idea in group theory. But it's the idea that you'll you'll have two different ways of defining the group. You'll either have a center point, a center set, which is we're going to define this center pole, and everyone is going to gravitate towards that, and it's just right there, very clear in the center, and that's us. Okay, every every organization, every group in the world has that. On the other end, you have this thing called bounded set, where you you mark out boundaries, and within that, there's freedom. Okay, that's another way that groups organize themselves. Um, many traditions in America have tended towards center set. They've said, one confession, one thing, we rally to this, this is it, like right here in the center. What's new for a lot of people is to be a part of this bounded set thing where it's like we're going we're gonna to mark out the boundaries. Um, for Anglicans, this has been normally the way that we've tended towards. Um, why? Well, most people aren't used to this, but but if you're going to have an entire society that's founded upon uh, uh, upon Christian doctrine, uh, and it has to encompass the whole society, right? Um, then then you have to mark out the boundaries, and there have to be limits to the doctrine. 
Um, one of the things that's currently on argument right now is where are those limits now? Um, but but I will say to you very clearly that uh, that we do have those limits, and within those limits and boundaries, there's freedom. Um, G.K. Chesterton once said that once noted that um, Christian doctrine is like is like a and and the and the ways that Christians approach it is like a bunch of children playing on a playground that's surrounded by high cliffs on every side. Um, as long as there's a fence, they'll play happily. You know, occasionally a ball will go over the fence, and no big deal. You know, we'll just get another one. <laughs> but, but you take away the fence, and what do they do? They huddle scared in the middle, right? Um, and, and so what, what I would just kind of put before you is the possibility that one of the reasons we tend towards that center-set idea is that the boundaries are not clear. And when we, don't, when we suffer from a lack of clear boundaries, we tend to retreat to the center. Um, that makes sense, right? But what I constantly want to put a little bit of pressure on you to think about is where within the boundaries of Christian practice and Christian believing do I fall? Um, uh, and how is that marked out for us as Anglicans? Well, I'll tell you how it's marked out for us as Anglicans. It's marked out through things like the Catechism, although this Catechism is very new. It was just published several years ago, um, and that makes it in the process of being received, which it's been very widely received, and that's good, and, and I want to mark that out. The, the place where you go to find out what Anglicans believe, actually, is first, Holy Scripture, right? And then the prayer book. Why a prayer book? That makes no sense. Like, no American usually thinks, like, if I want to know, if I want to know what people believe, do I look to how they pray? And, and our answer is, that's exactly how you do it. <laughs> like, that's the best way to do it. Uh, there's this old uh, principle that dates back to the 5th century in the church called Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, and it comes from Prosper of Aquitaine, who was a French theologian. Uh, well, I guess the French weren't really. He was a Gaulish theologian. Uh, and, and he basically says uh, that, that we see that the law of praying establishes the law of believing. And he meant that they cut both ways. We believe that which we pray, right? Would you agree with that? Like, you shouldn't go off and pray heretical things because, you know, openly anyway, uh, because, because it's just dissonant, right? And it doesn't make sense. And why would you do that? And that's, that's ridiculous. And, and it's why it also rubs us the wrong way when people go off and they pray things that are a little strange, right? Have you noticed this? That if you're ever in a group of people and one is, is just praying in this way that, you know, maybe, very well-intentioned. Let's just, just lay that out first. But just kind of rubs you the wrong way, and you're like, that? That's not Christian prayer. Whatever it is, it's like it's not Christian prayer. Um, that shows you what's going on. And for Anglicans, what we do is we pray according to the law of our believing, and we believe according to the law of our praying. Uh, these set forth this way. So, one of the things that people will ask me is like, what do you teach about baptism? Well, let's look to the baptism rite, right? That's how you do it. What do you believe about the Eucharist? Look at the Eucharistic rite. Um, what do you think about bishops? Look at how bishops are ordained, right? Or consecrated. Um, what do you think about priests? Like, look at the ordination rite. It's like, that is, that's where you go constantly. And, and you look and you, and you read it. Um, so that's key. And by the way, this is, this is drawn from scripture. Um, 90% of it is straight quotations from Scripture. So I want to make sure that you understand that. Um, but with that, let's, let's turn to uh, this uh, new section of the Catechism. Um, we have talked in recent weeks about the death 
uh, and an atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Um, but I want to uh, go back to page 42 in this catechism uh, and just kind of reemphasize a few things. Uh, the creed emphasizes Jesus' death on the cross uh, in a way that is, uh, that is, that is very clear. Um, and, and so let's ask this question, uh, question 64, 65. What does Jesus' death mean for you? Jesus bore my sins and died the death that I deserve so that I could be saved from sin and eternal condemnation and reconciled to God. So there, there are a few things here. One is that for our sins, what is it that we deserve? What's, it, what's the wage of sin, as Paul puts it in Romans 3? Death. The wages of sin is death, right? Uh, it's in every gospel tract that's worth its salt. It's the wages of sin is death. Why? Why do we say that? This isn't just sort of some like, you know, it's not just like spiritual death, like in this, you know, esoteric manner. One of the first, one of the first drafts that we had of the catechism was somebody with a very good intention sort of saying that there are two ways. One is, one is uh, life, spiritual life, and the other one is spiritual death. And we rejected the draft. Why did we reject the draft? Because it's not just a spiritual death. It's a real death. Like, the reason that you and I will one day die is because of sin. It's not complicated, right? Um, now, does that mean that Granny died of, of, uh, of cancer because she was less than moral? No, that's not what it means. What it means is that we've inherited this condition of sin. We've inherited this, this uh, what I like to say, is a terminal disease called sin. There's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can, uh, there's nothing, there's no right thing that we can pray that will do anything about it. Um, it entirely falls upon the action of God in Christ to save us from this state. Um, so Jesus bore this sin, bore this, the, the wages of this death. Um, so that I could be saved from sin and eternal condemnation and reconciled to God. Um, this reconciliation means to be with again. It means very simply to, uh, to be um, uh, in the fellowship of God again. Um, if you've ever had a friendship that's gone bad, anybody? Like, yes, okay. <laughs> and you're probably like, oh, why did he have to bring that up? <laughs> but, but think about it for a moment. If you've ever had a friendship that went bad and then were reconciled, which I hope you've had as well, um, you know that, that some of that's rocky, but, but you wind up saying, we still want to be friends, and we're still going to work towards that end. Um, and much of reconciliation is, is knowing God's love for us, that he's not, he's not just sort of uh, canceled us or, or thrown us out of his good graces, but that he loves us and wants us uh, deeply. But that, that, that thing cuts both ways, right? Um, it does require our, our uh, cooperation, um, but it is God's work that reconciles us. Question 66, why does the creed make a point of saying that Jesus died? The creed makes the point to emphasize that Jesus died a real bodily death, such as all people face because of our sins. Some of this is just rehashing last week, but some of you weren't here. Um, the death on the cross was not just the appearance of a death. So this is a really key thing. There were some ancient heretics called docetists. And in the Greek, dokeo means appears. Um, so they were saying, it only appeared that he died on the cross. And what is it the Orthodox Christianity says? No, he really died. <laughs> like, dead as a doornail, dead. Dead. Okay. Um, which is scandalous. Why is it scandalous? 
we spoke last week about this, this, this thing of transitive properties and, and the communicatio idiomatum in Latin, this idea that um, whatever we say about Jesus, we have to say about both his human and divine natures, together in one divine person. So what do we say about this death on the cross? Did God die on the cross? Yes, right? That's the gospel. Okay, go ahead. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. Um, historically, it's a bit of a weird, it's a bit of a weird deal. Um, a lot of it has to do with language, right? Um, well, I'll just put it this way. We use euphemisms for death, right? All the time. If I say he passed away, you know what I mean, right? Now, it's a euphemism, right? It's, it's meant to, in some ways, soften the blow a bit. Um, um, in, in language, something like suffered and was buried means dead. So it, it's clear, right? Um, in, in English translations, it doesn't quite come across. And that's why we have the Apostles' Creed to, correct, to make that very clear, right? Um, so, so I just say that, um, and one is just simply to say that uh, you know I, I, I will just I think I feel the need to talk about this. We love to use euphemisms for death because death seems weird to us. Death seems hard. Death is rough. It's really hard to talk about. So we like to say things like he's gone, he passed away. Um, uh, many Christian traditions have used the word falling asleep. Now they don't mean he fell asleep, right? They mean dead. Um, but but it's to emphasize something else, which we're going to talk about a great deal today, which is that well, he's going to wake up. Um, we tend to use uh, language, and I, I actually think this is something which we Christians need to be very cognizant of. We actually use language that is actually anti-Christian. Now I recognize the good intentions between behind saying things like "passed away," right? I never use that word, and you'll note I never use that word because I think it's I think it's actually just bad language for death. Because in fact, what we teach, what we as Christians teach about death, is not that people just go away, but that their life is changed and not ended. Um, and so, uh, and we'll see why here in the coming in the coming text. But this is really key. I mean, it's something that um, we have a we have an opportunity to make an incredible witness, and we don't do it because we use the euphemisms that everyone else uses. Um, and and the reality is, most people when they use that word "passing away," they mean gone, just gone forever. And there might be some passing language of a resurrection, but it's not really the focus of of Christian thought. Okay, is that is that helpful? Like languages use use, use euphemisms all the time, right? Um, It, it, yes, it would have been Greek, yeah. And so some of those are really interesting because actually the Apostles' Creed, though most of the texts we have are in Latin, uh, the earliest texts of the Apostles' Creed were in Greek. And so there are some differences there. Some, uh, but, but actually, and this is important, um, we should note that translations don't change doctrine. This is really important. <laughs> translations only change how we relay the doctrine, how we teach the doctrine. But the trans, like, you know, translations of Scripture don't alter doctrine. However, I want to make a really important point. Translations um, actually allow us to see more of the doctrine down the road. So 
uh, Steve Waters again is really great about this in our parish. He's he's constantly translating scripture and he's into all kinds of languages. And and one of the things he notes is that 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 work of translation actually pushes pushes us towards understanding the gospel better. Um, is it that the gospel changes? No, it's that we understand it better because of these linguistic things. Okay, but all it does is say uh, yes. I mean, I've I've been bothered by that too. That it doesn't seem explicit. Um, but in fact, uh, that language that's used there does mean he died. Um, and we'll, we'll say more about that as we go forward. Um, now, I want to say something about this as well. Um, this, Christi- this heresy, this docetism, is actually the foundation of Islam. Um, early Islam uh, was essentially a Christian heresy. Um, well, Christian heresy. Um, and and uh, Muslims to this day teach it. It's in the Quran that uh, Jesus did not actually die on the cross, but only appeared to die on the cross. Um, and uh, this is the foundation, actually, of Islam. Um, and it's one of the, one of the main things that, that kind of uh, distinguishes, um, well, there are lots of things that distinguish, but, but it is one of the things that is, the, is that kind of doctrinal history behind Islam. Um, so I want you to know that. Um, one of the things that, that uh, missionaries in, Muslim, in the Muslim world emphasize is this very real death of Jesus Christ. Um, so there's that. Um, but it's also not only to say that he truly died on the cross, but to celebrate the fact that he died there to secure our salvation and to prepare our minds to grasp the glory of his, of his bodily resurrection. So this is important. Um, in, in Christian teaching, especially in the creeds, one doctrine leads to the other. So this is really important. As you read through a creed, you should say, okay, the doctrine of God, the Father, um, is the basis upon which we build this doctrine of Jesus Christ. We can't just sort of have a doctrine about Jesus Christ that has no reference to the Father. Because then what is he? Is he the son of the Father? Is he, what, what is he? Um, you, have to, you, have to, you have to build on this, uh, this clarity. And each thing leads to the other. And in this case, what leads to this, uh, this teaching on the resurrection, or what in fact leads us up to it, is, uh, is this teaching on his very real bodily death. All right. What does the creed mean by saying that Jesus descended to the dead? That Jesus descended to the dead means that he d- truly died and entered the place of the departed. Okay, now, I'm just going to kind of square this away. There are lots of people who have opined on this question of Jesus descending among the dead, or as some of the creedal translations will put it, descended into hell, uh, which is actually a perfectly good translation, and, and you know, we shouldn't be afraid of it. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that, and I'll, I'll get into them a little bit. Um, but first... It is the, the catechism is dead on right when it says um, that it emphasizes this point to make it clear that he really died. So, so what, it's in, what it's in essence saying is whatever happens to Jesus, whatever happened to him in his death, is precisely what will happen to us when we die. It's precisely what happens to every human being when they die. He's not exempted from that. That's what happened. Okay? That's the first layer, right? However, the New Testament says a great deal about, and it's hotly contested as a doctrinal subject, what actually happened to him when what did he do as he descended among the dead. First, Peter holds forth this idea that, um, and Peter holds forth on this, that, that Jesus descends among the dead and actually preaches the gospel among the dead. So that the dead as a kind of first fruits might come to believe. Um, and there are, there's lots of ancient uh, 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 teaching on this that we can follow and track. 
Um, one of the things we do here as a tradition is we, on Holy Saturday, and by the way, I'm so overjoyed because people actually come here on Holy Saturday morning uh, for the Holy Saturday liturgy, and it's incredibly popular, and I love it that we have that, because most churches it's like the altar guild and me, but here it's like 80 people show up for the Holy Saturday liturgy to hear, to hear an ancient homily read, um, which, which we try to do with some dramatic flair, but but it speaks of Jesus descending among the dead, bearing his victorious weapon, the cross, and he beats his, you know, Adam is there to receive him in hell. And, and, uh, and you might say, well, that's really strange that Jesus would go to hell. What does that mean? And, um, and, and I think we need to say a couple things. One is that um, we're not talking about the, the eternal place of the damned here. We're actually talking about the, the place of the dead as understood in the ancient world, which is something like uh, the Jewish conception of Sheol, this place in which the dead exist, or uh, in, cla- in the classical world, something like, um, like Hades, right? It's a place where, uh, where the dead are, the underworld, in, another wo- in other words. Um, and, and the teaching is that wherever the dead are, Jesus went there. It's full stop. Now the question is, what did he do there? Well, I think Scripture teaches rather clearly that he proclaims the gospel among the dead. Why? Because there are dead who had hoped in him, preemptively. Um, and, and they are reconciled through that proclamation and through that, through that as well. Um, and you might ask all kinds of questions, like, well, is the gospel still proclaimed among the dead? And the answer I would give is, I don't know, maybe, probably. Like, <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> but but it's, it's, all of that is in the realm of speculation. What we do know is that Jesus descended among the dead, and, and uh, the gospel is preached among the dead. We know that from Scripture. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, this is... This is the big question we're going to get into today, is like, what happens when you die? And the first thing that I will always say is, it's a great mystery. Okay, let's, just, let's just hold that for a bit, just breathe with it for a bit. Like, it's going to be okay. Uh, and, but, but I do want to say that this is often like the most horrifying part of catechesis, is this like, I thought I knew what happened to me when I die, and now I'm not so sure, because all of this teaching from Scripture is being leveled at me, and now I'm, now I'm a little confused. But... Hold that thought. We'll get there. Okay, um, we're getting there today. Uh, yeah, we're going to get there today. Because uh, let me just say, like most Christians in America, hold to absolutely faulty ideas of death and what eternity will look like. They're largely ignorant about this, like through through much of my life. Um, but but it's in understanding this teaching that I've come to actually, and I want to say this really strongly, I've come to really embrace. Christian teaching in this because I think it is hopeful. It's in, it's and it's just the truth too. But but um, but I've seen the hope of it deeply um, in my own life and it, and I've seen it radi- I've seen it radically change my life too, just to live in this reality. So I want to want to put that before you. Okay, so you ready? We're gonna jump in. Okay, uh, page forty three, question sixty nine. What does the creed mean when it affirms that Jesus rose again from the dead? It means that Jesus was not simply resuscitated. God restored him physically from death to life in his resurrected body, never to die again. His tomb was empty. Jesus had risen bodily from the dead. The risen Jesus was seen by his apostles and hundreds of other witnesses. So, Jesus was not simply resuscitated. Say I have a heart attack right here, and you call 911, and the EMTs come, and they come racing through the door, and I'm on my back, and they put the bag on my face, and they start pumping it, and they start 
pumping on my chest, and I go back to the back hallway and grab the, uh, the, uh, the, the machine that we have back there. By the way, we have a, we have a resuscitation machine back there if you ever need it. Uh, and, and it's battery powered and super cool. Um, but, but my heart starts beating again. Cool. What was I? Resuscitated. Was I resurrected? No. The return of a beating heart and the return of brain waves and all of that is not called resurrection. That's called resuscitation. Okay. Um, now it might seem like a like a bare linguistic difference, and you might be right, but there's a huge difference when it comes to what we teach about the resurrection. Huge. First, the resurrection is not simply uh, the 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 uh, restarting of a dead man's heart. It's something far more glorious than that, and we'll talk about it. It's not. It is also not. Uh, just sort of like a temporary death that lasts for maybe a few minutes. It's dead as a doornail, um, buried in the ground. Three days pass. Um, those kinds of things are taught. The other thing that happens, and we need to be clear about this, is what happens when Jesus is restored from death to life? What's his new bodily life like? It's transformed, yeah. There's, you, you might call a metamorphosis has taken place. Right? So he still is Jesus, but there's something very different about him. What's different about him? Yeah, he won't die. So this is the first thing, right? This is the first thing we should say is, um, as, as Paul puts it, um, Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no more, what? Dominion over him. Okay, so it has no, more, no lordship over him, which means what? That he's lord of death. It's awesome. <laughs> and life. If you're, lord of, if you're lord of death, you're lord of life, right? Um, so that's cool. Never die again. No way, no how. Can't. Right? You, you get to die once in this life. That's it. Um, by the way, uh, I, I think it's for this reason that I would urge all of you to be cautious about... Um, these kinds of very popular books, which I refer to as heaven tourism novels or heaven tourism books, um, they they usually present a very uh, a very deeply problematic version of heaven. That is something like a kind of somatic state in which your spirit floats up uh, and and your body is left behind and so on and so forth. Um, you know they're very interesting, but but um, but but. The, the story we need to cling to is the biblical story of Jesus' resurrection, which is a different story than that. So what else? He's got a really interesting body. What does it do? What can it do? Yeah, he like appears and disappears. That's cool. Like His body is no longer limited in time and space. He can disappear in Jerusalem and reappear in Galilee. Like that. Did you ever notice, and you should notice this from the scriptural accounts, this is actually some of the things that like, you know, free thinkers will cast aspersions on scripture and they'll say, did you ever notice about this bodily resurrection, bunch of hokum, uh, that, that Jesus is all over the stinking map on Easter Sunday? Did you, ever, I mean, did you ever notice that? And the Christian response is, precisely. You know, like, good job. Like, you figured it, you got it, right? He, he disappears, and then he's on the road to Emmaus, and then he's like over here, and then he's over there. And it's like, well, where did, where did he go? You know? And, and the, the reality is no longer limited in time and space. So 
this is part of what it means to have a glorified body. Right? Um, he, can, he can appear behind closed doors. Now, many people have said, well, this is just proof that his resurrection, whatever it was, was not bodily. It was something else. And I think what we have to say is, <laughs> I'll just put it this way. Like, our bodies are, in a sense, non-glorious in this current state of sin. I mean, you know this, right? You've been to the bathroom, okay? You've, you've been sick. Like, your body's non it's, it's been Some of its glory has been taken, right? Um, but to live in a glorified body is pretty cool. He's pretty awesome. Like, do you know what it really means? It means that Jesus is not captive in creation any longer. He, is, he, is, uh, he lives in a, um, well, I'd just say, a prerogative of glory over creation, right? He's not limited in this time and space kind of way. What else? What's that? He walks through walls. That's a big one. I mean, you know, that's pretty neat too. Um, he walks through walls. He, you know, this is this is like the gospel reading on Easter Sunday. Okay. On the first day of the week, the door is being shut for fear of the Jews. Right? Jesus came among them and said, "Peace be with you." What does he do? He shows them his hands and his feet. <laughs> so, so there are scars from his bodily life that have remained. There are some that don't appear to, but there are some that have remained. So it's clear that there's continuity between the body, right? So it's, it, it is the same body, but altered, glorified, you might say. Right? And I think we really need to make this clear. I've, I've heard many Christians say, I'm going to get a new body. Like, and what they mean is like, I'm going to you know, trade my fat body for my skinny body and everything's going to be awesome. And it's like, well, that's not what we teach about the resurrection. What we teach is your body will be raised from the dead. New, but more like renewed. Okay? It's really important. So, um, you know, some people will say, well, <laughs> I know I probably shouldn't smoke 40 cigarettes a day, but, you know, I'm getting a new body, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, your lungs are going to be needed in heaven, right? Now, they'll be glorified and renewed and all that wonderful, you know, right? But like your body, your body, um, really important. Um, because and, and why do we know this? Because this is what happened to Jesus, right? The entire teaching on our fate as human beings from Scripture is rooted in the testimony of the apostles regarding what happened to Jesus in his death and resurrection. Okay, so that's really important to say. All right, what else can happen to him? There's some really key things here. He eats. Oh my! That's like that was one. Of, that was the one I was looking for. He eats, right? Uh, he he sits on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He puts fish down on charcoal, and he eats with his disciples. The question is, does he have to? And you know, assumably not. Right? I mean, one of the things that one of the things I love in Scripture is Jesus saying, you know, um, about this Passover feast that he eats. He says, I have longed to eat it with you. But, but he's basically saying, I won't eat it again until I'm with you in the kingdom. So, so here's, here's some fun stuff, right? When we celebrate the Eucharist, we do so in anticipation of this great Paschal feast, which sits in heaven, but is kind of laid out and unconsumed until that day. So uh, a long distance between these feasts. Um, but Jesus eats. He eats. He doesn't have to, but he can. 
um, something really big. Did you ever notice that his appearance seems to be able to change? Like, he's with Mary Magdalene, and she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. Now, there are a number of theories about this, namely that she wasn't looking at him, she just thought he was the gardener, like, I'm going to ignore you. Okay, fine. Uh, whatever. Like, that's fine. But two disciples on the road to Emmaus walking by him having a Bible study, and they think, yeah, this is pretty cool. Like, who, who the heck are you? And they don't get it until what? He breaks bed with them. And then he's made known to them. So let me just throw this one in front of you. For Jesus to be raised in the body means he can be made known in sacramental ways. That, that when you meet him in the body, you meet him in totality. Okay, and that's made clear. Okay, so that's there. Um, but, but let's go back to this catechism uh, answer. It means that he was never going to die again. His tomb was empty. Jesus had risen bodily from the dead. And then the risen Jesus was seen by his apostles and hundreds of other witnesses. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul gives testimony to the resurrection. And he uses a language that's just wonderful. Um, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. And he talks about the resurrection. He's using actually the language of tradition. This is in, in Latin uh, text. But, well, 1 Corinthians 15 in Latin, translated by Jerome, is I received it and I gave it back. You know, It's this language of uh, tradition. By the way, traducio in Latin means to uh, hand down. Um, it's the same language we use for catechesis, which is, uh, which is to sound down, right? Um, big, big stuff going on there. But Paul says that, um, that he appeared to as many as 500 people at one time in his risen body. He appeared all over the map. And finally, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Uh, so the risen Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus. Um, and this is, this, is, this is his conversion happens because he meets the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And it's actually why Paul has no, uh, no qualms about calling himself an apostle because he meets the risen Christ personally um, and, and sees him. Okay, so let's move forward. What kind of earthly life did Jesus have after he rose from the dead? Following his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days visiting and teaching his followers. He appeared to his disciples, spoke to them, invited them to touch him and to see his scars, and ate with them. So you got that one, right? That's, that's the big one. He, it's one of the big ones. He ate with them. But, but listen to this. He spent 40 days. So next spring, we're going to celebrate, uh, we're going to go through Lent, 40 days, and then we're going to go through the beginning of Eastertide, straight up to the Ascension Day, which is always on a Thursday, 40 days after Easter Sunday, right? Do you see what's going on? We celebrate all of those re resurrection appearances, and then we celebrate the Ascension, and then on the day of Pentecost, we celebrate Pentecost. And we do this every year, right? As a, as a kind of um, reenacting of this, of this teaching. Um, so he visited and, and taught his followers following this. He appeared to the disciples. He spoke to them. He invited them to touch him. So here's another aspect that we had not quite dwelt on, but he can be touched. Like, let's just get this really solidly clear. Jesus invites his disciples to touch him. He says, I love one of the, one of the translations, it's like, handle me. Okay? It's like, <laughs> it's, not, it's not touch me, it's handle me. That's much better. I love that. Um, Thomas, this is like 
right out of the gate. You have Easter Sunday, the following Sunday, always, Thomas, always. What's the point being made? Thomas is doubtful. He wants to meet Jesus as he's expected him to be. He says, unless I see the marks of the nails and the wound is, I won't believe because I need that level of proof. And what does he get? All that he's asking for. Okay, um, that's the uh, listen. The big point on on that Sunday is not oh well, doubting, doubting Thomas. No, it's he asks for a sign. He gets the sign. And what does he say? Because he receives the sign, he doesn't say oh that's a neat trick. He says, "My Lord and my God." And I think I said this a couple weeks ago. He he utters what in the in the ancient world in that time in the in the Latin world was in the Roman world was was heresy. It was this kind of secular heresy. It would be, it would be like saying Jesus Christ is the duly elected president of the United States and also God. So that's fun. I mean, like think about that for a moment. That that'll just that'll just rock your world. Like. Really? Yeah, that's what we teach, right? Is that Jesus Christ is more powerful than the president, that presidential powers, whatever they are, are subject to Jesus Christ and his kingship over the whole world, and his lordship overall, and that he's God. So whoever this is that's risen from the dead, Jesus Christ, is Lord and God over all, all creation, which by the way, is the prerogative of one who rises from the dead. So, so Christian teaching is actually really simple on this. It's, if you defeat death, you get all the powers of awesomeness forever. Right? Like, that's something that's kind of foreign from our mind because we're like, oh, you know, we have these things called, you know, we have, we have little uh, resuscitation machines that we stick in little, little metal boxes in our churches and like, yeah, but like, that's not what ha- that's not what happens in the resurrection. What happens in the resurrection is that death is defeated. <laughs> okay, so so the the best way I can sort of describe to you the gospel is: Jesus dies the death you should have died, and he beats the crap out of it, and he wins. And because he wins, he is Lord and King over all creation forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's the gospel. Okay, so it's not just Jesus died for your sins so that you can go to heaven and isn't that nice. No, it's Jesus beat the tar out of death. Um, and this is the fun part. This is, this is why this teaching on the resurrection is so important is that we Christians hold that whatever happened to Jesus will someday happen to every single human being, period, full stop. And you might say, but what about the really evil people? Yes, them too. Because the resurrection doesn't apply to humanity, just those who are redeemed, just those who are believers. It applies to the entire dang mass. Okay, So this is really important, right? We actually teach the general resurrection of the dead. It's the resurrection of the dead that happens prior to judgment. So this is really key. We're raised from the dead, stand on our own two feet, we redeem body that will last forever, and then we're judged. So this is really, really important and really key, and I want to I want to spend some time on this, uh, but we'll 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 get to it. I've got to got to talk about the ascension first. Okay, we'll get there. We're getting there. We're we're getting there full speed ahead. 
How should he understand Jesus' ascension into heaven? Jesus was taken up out of human sight and returned in his humanity to the glory he had shared with the Father before his incarnation. Therefore he intercedes for and receives into heavenly life all who come to him in faith. Though absent in body, Jesus is always with me by his Spirit and hears me when I pray. A couple things about this. Scripture teaches clearly in the Acts of the Apostles and in Luke that Jesus, at the end of, his, at the end of this uh, earthly life, following his resurrection, he's taken up bodily into heaven. What does this mean? Where's heaven? Up. I, I think you, you all need to know this. Like, some of you are old enough to remember the lunar landing. You're old enough to remember like shots of Earth from the moon. And on an evening in 1969, all of our understanding of the universe was critically altered. Everybody. Like, inescapably. Most people, I mean, a lot of scientists were like, yeah, that's what it's like. Okay, but, but the idea you could sort of go through the heavens and bust through and go take pictures of the earth from the moon is like earth-shattering. So where's heaven? Up in the clouds? Like, and I would actually put before you that this is a great opportunity for Christians to proclaim the gospel. Because what we teach about the resurrection and ascension is not that you get to go hang out in the clouds. That's not heaven. Whatever, that, whatever heaven is, it's not hanging out in the clouds. Okay. Here we find out what it is. He's taken out of human sight and returned in his humanity to the glory he had shared with the Father before his incarnation. He's with God, hidden with God. His life is hidden with God, as Paul will say about us. There he, he has activities that he undertakes. Okay? He intercedes for and receives into heavenly life all who come to him in faith. So first is this act of intercession, constant intercession at the right hand of the Father. Um, this is portrayed in Scripture in a, in a couple ways. Uh, one is that he, uh, he intercedes for us in our daily lives and struggles and sufferings and, uh, and all of that. Um, one of the things that Paul speaks about when he's talking about the trials of being a Christian and being persecuted is that we have an intercessor at the right hand of the Father. In addition to that, it's spoken of in a priestly sense. Um, one of the things that you don't quite that's, that doesn't really make sense about priestly work and priestly ministry to a lot of people is that um, that in Scripture anyway, the work of a priest is to intercede for the people. Um, the priest in the Old Testament goes into the Holy of Holies to intercede for the people. Um, he's a he's a stand between, right? and in this, if you read the letter, the letter to the Hebrews is all about this. It's Jesus fulfills perfectly this identity as both um, as both uh, God and man uh, is the perfect mediator, the perfect priest. Um, and he continues this ministry by a ministry of intercession at the right hand of the Father. Um, we should also say that, that this position at the right hand of the Father, uh, you, you may know this from the ancient world, there you know, are two hands, right? You have your right hand and your left hand. Your left hand is sinister. It's, it's what you beat people with when you, like, you know. In the ancient world, to hit somebody with your left hand was like a slight. What's the right hand for? It's for justice. It's for mercy. It's for all those things, all those good things. So he's at the right hand of the Father. 
not the left. Now, we don't mean he's literally like sitting next to the father at the right hand. That's not, that's not the point. It means that he sits um, as an administrator of mercy and justice and, uh, and redemption. And Father Matthew's sermon was totally on point, uh, totally on point today. But, but I want you to hear this, that in the Christian tradition, and he's right, he said this this morning, justice does not issue forth from our good intentions. Not even remotely. Like, we can't just sort of say, that's not right, we don't like that, let's make it right. No, 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 that's not how it works. Like, justice comes from God in accord with his will, in accord with his, you know, revealed will. How do we know what justice is? We look at Scripture. Um, one of the big questions that most people ask today is, um, well, I love what Alistair McIntyre titled one of his books. It's, whose justice and whose rationality? Are there universal notions of justice? Try as we might to find them, it's very difficult. Are there universal notions of rationality? No. At the end of the day, actually, this is the fun part, you and I are not actually rational. We actually rationalize our animal selves. Like our intuitive self, we rationalize that. So if you ever thought like, hey, uh, you know, I got, this, I got this big decision coming and I've got to make a decision and all this. Whatever you're going to do, it's not going to be I reasoned out a decision and then I did that. It's I intuited the decision and then I ex post facto reasoned towards that conclusion to justify myself. Which... That'll send you for a loop. But that's the truth, right? That's what we do. And we do it because we don't actually have a capacity to reason through every last jot and tittle of our lives. We actually have to act on intuition. Now, some of you philosophers are losing it. I'm speaking psychologically. Uh, can you reason toward... Yes, absolutely. God gives you reason and you should use it. Um, but but here's, here's why I'm saying all of this this morning. I'm saying it because... We're talking about Jesus at the right hand of God. Um, and and this, this act of intercession, which he constantly outpours to the Father. What is it about? It's about interceding for his church, that his church might thrive. It's interceding for you and for me. Um, the, the, uh, if I can just be permitted, my, uh, my traditional Ascension Day homily is this. It's a story. It's a completely fictitious story uh, about the Civil War. Okay, So I'm just telling you this. It wasn't true. never happened. But here it is. Uh, a army private from Pennsylvania was serving in the Civil War, and he uh, got a letter from his mother and his sister. And it said, uh, I don't know if you've received the news yet, but your father's dead, your brother's dead. They're both killed in battle. And uh, we're alone left to harvest. So you got to come home. Like, the letter was pleading for this you know, army private to defect and come home. The war is winding down. I mean, it's that kind of thing. So he goes to his commanding officer and says, can I get some leave to go to do the harvest and then I'll come right back. I promise. And the, 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 the officer is like, I can't grant you that. We're in the middle of a war. I don't know if you've noticed that. And, and the private says, please just give me, give me some help. And the general says, winds up saying, listen, uh, you know, I'll give you three days leave um, to go to Washington, D.C. and plead your case. So he sets out on foot. Um, walks all day, all night. Gets to the only place he knows where to go, which is to the White House. Stands at the gate. 
talks to the to the guard on gate on duty. Says I need to talk to uh, somebody who can give me leave. <laughs> and the, the guard says, "All the generals are out at war. I think you might be talking about the president. W can I talk to him?" No, absolutely not. <laughs> like, I don't know if you've heard, but there's a war on. Private, get back to the front. And and he's he, so he goes away sad, and he's sitting on a sitting on a bench, and he's weeping. He doesn't know what to do. And all of a sudden, this little boy comes along. He's got one of those like hoops and sticks, you know. He's pushing it along, and he, and he salutes the private. He says, "How you doing there, soldier?" And he the, the soldier then tells him what's going on. And I need to leave. I need to go back to my farm to do the harvest with my sister and my mother. Um, it's very, very dire. And, uh, and the boy's like, I think I could do something about that. And so he grabs the private by the, by the coat, picks him up, leads him down straight through the halls of the White House and straight into an office. And everyone is saluting the little boy as they go through. And he rambles right into an office and says, Dad, Dad, Dad! I just met this soldier. You should talk to him. And he was discharged that day. Do you see the power that's there um, in having in having an intercessor at the right hand of God? That's what that's what it's about. Okay, so I love that story. I tell it just about every Ascension Day because because the like God owes us nothing. Like nothing, um, but loves the sun. <laughs> loves the sun. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Sure. God. Well, that's a great mystery, of course. I mean, I don't think I don't think you could. Ever exhaust what is actually prayed for, right? Um, it's, it's both individual, but also for for all of us together. I think one of the things I'm increasingly aware of is that, um, for the sake of uh, for the sake of His Church, He continually pours out intercession. Like that's one of the things we just lose is that why does the world keep turning on its axis? It's not so that like maybe we could defeat global warming and have the time to do that. What is it? The, the world, okay, the world is meant to be a temple within which the church worships completely. One of the things I, I spoke a great deal about early on in church planting was like we're actually fulfilling this kind of manifest destiny in creation by taking every last darn square inch of it as a place for the worship of God. And I used to think about that a lot when we met in an old break shop. It was like, this is what we're doing. We're establishing the church. Um, what is, well, what's the prayer that, I mean, part of what we'll look at is, is the Lord's Prayer. He prays, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the intercession going on. Okay, but let me let me jump back to the subject of Hannibal. Just do one question, I think, before we wrap up, just to give you a, a sense of the seat of the right hand. What does it mean for Jesus to sit at God the Father's right hand? The throne on the King's right hand was traditionally the seat of one appointed to exercise the King's own authority. 
Ruling with his Father in heaven, Jesus is Lord over the church and all creation, with authority to equip his church, advance his kingdom, bring sinners into saving fellowship with God the Father, and finally establish justice and peace upon the earth. Um, Paul in Ephesians, and it's actually in Ephesians 4 that this point is really driven home. It's not Ephesians 1, uh, 20, although all those gifts are spoken of in Ephesians 1. It's in Ephesians 4 that Paul says, he, he makes reference to the one who descended is also the one who ascended, right? And why did he do this? To give gifts. Okay, So think about that as we come towards Christmas. It's like, uh, why do I brave the lines at Target? Or probably this year, why do I spend time on Amazon and wait for things to come to my door? It's like, to give gifts. Why does Jesus die on the cross and rise from the dead and go to the Father, on the right hand of the Father? Why does he do this? We don't have a sufficient understanding of this in the West. It's mostly in the East they understand this. Why does, why does this happen? Well, in the East they teach very strongly. He does this so that he can send his Holy Spirit to be with us, to give us gifts. We really need to think about this. Like the reason that Jesus is the right hand of the Father is to give gifts to us. The gifts that are given, um, well, and what does Paul say about it? First, apostles, teachers, evangelists, etc. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Why? That we may no longer be children, tossed about by every wind of doctrine. So the reason that, that, that Jesus has gone to the Father, and I I want to end here. There's, there's, a great, there's a great Greek word, telos. It means, it means grown up. It means perfected. It means doing what you are supposed to do. What you were made to do. Uh, for, for Christians, it's always associated with glory. It's also associated with looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter and pioneer of our faith. Who has done what? Died risen from the dead, gone to the right hand of the Father, where he does what? He intercedes, gives gifts. Why? So that we can be mature. Okay. Um, this is huge. Um, Christian maturity comes at the cost of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and his continued ministry of intercession at the right hand of the Father, which uh, gains for us those gifts. Um, the reason I say this is that we often just completely forget this. We're like, oh, we just, you know. Um, but but I, what I really want you to see, and this is where I probably scandalized you, and I'm just going to drop it and then move on, and next week we'll come back to it, um, which is that for most Christians in America, they don't think about this. They think, someday I'm going to die, and then I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. To a land where joys will never end, I'll fly away. Okay, Fine. But what Christians speak of in the resurrection is, okay, this is how I like to end this session. Someday, I'm going to die. I'm going to be dead as a doornail. According to my instructions, they're going to stick me in a particle board box, nailed shut on four corners. There's a reason for that. I can tell you about it later. I'm going to get buried six feet under the ground, like a real burial. And someday, hallelujah, 
my body will be exhumed by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the word of the Lord to stand on the earth again, and I'll be judged. Assuming that goes well, okay, I will be taken up uh, to be with Jesus in glory. In this life, in this, in this bodily life. Um, that's, the, that's, that's at the heart of the gospel. It's not this sort of somatic sleep where you play a harp until everybody gets bored to tears. Right? It, it is to reign with Christ in glory. Um, so I want, you to, I want you to hear that. right? And, and as we head into the Eucharist, this is what the Eucharist is about. Is it not? If the Eucharist is about anything, what is it? It's about being with Jesus in a position and posture of thanks. Not being with Jesus just in our minds, but being with Jesus in reality. Where He is. Which is here, right? So that's the, that's the wild part about the ascension, right? Where is Jesus? He's not here. But then he says, lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Which is it, Jesus? This is very confusing. Are you with us or not? And what's the answer? It's both. Why? You have, you have to see this, right? There are three ways that we think about the body of Christ. We should think about the body of Christ. We think about the, the risen and ascended body of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. We think about his body of the church, and we think about his body in the Eucharist. We should speak of all three simultaneously and coterminously. Why? What we eat there is what we are. And it's what we will be. Do you see? It's, it's what's presented in the Eucharist is an eschatological summary of all reality and creation. Okay? There's something very cosmic going on today. Um, and so, so, uh, Part of what I want you to see today in, in, in liturgy is how God is, is molding and remaking his people through this liturgical act which draws us into the person of Christ um, as, a, as a sign of what, uh, what, um, what our end is, okay? which is to be with Jesus, to be where he is, um, to be remade as he is, to be with him. Um, so... All that we teach about the, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is, is what we face. It's what we look forward to. All right. Bless you all.